We're looking specifically at precious in God's sight, God's depiction of femininity, and this is our third part in this passage. Let me read it for us. In the same way, 1 Peter 3, verse 1, you wives be submissive to your own husbands so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectable behavior. Your adornment must not merely be external, braiding the hair, wearing gold jewelry, or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and a quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also, who hoped in God, used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you've become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. And you husbands in the same way live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker or a weaker vessel since she is a woman and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. I trust you're aware of the term anthropology. It's the study of humans and humanity. Specifically, it's the study of language, behavior, our distinction from animals, gender, sex, sexuality, and dignity. But biblical anthropology is the study of how God views man in those contexts and in those areas. It defines what it means by God to truly be human. Now, just for a moment, I want you to go see this with your own eyes. Flip back to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, the very first chapter in God's Word. We find out something very interesting about anthropology, about God's view of man. Genesis 1:26. Then God said, "Let us." I think that's a reference clearly to the Trinity. Make man in our image. We call this the imago Dei from the Latin, the image of God, according to our likeness. And let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky, over the cattle, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And then verse seven. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. This in Hebrew is called a repetition for the purpose of an exclamation point. There was no exclamation point in Hebrew. So if you see something repeated, that's the way of really pronouncing it loudly. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. What did you mean, Moses? Here we find out. Male and female, he created them. And the idea in the image of God was this idea of maleness and femaleness. And I think if the church does not hold to the Bible's teaching on maleness and femaleness, we're going to quickly lose sexual identification and sexual distinctions between men and women, boys and girls, and you're already witnessing that in the news every day. 
We already see it not only happening in the news, we see it happening in churches. It's gonna creep into our own church body if we're not careful to identify and define maleness and femaleness according to scripture. It is almost absurd that I have to say in a public forum, you do know there's a difference between boys and girls and between men and women. And all you have to do is go down the street to the largest Methodist church in America and see that it's being shouted from the pulpit that there is no substantive difference between males and females, either in roles or in function. We're seeing the mixing of the two. And the world's philosophy of maleness and femaleness has to be combated and fought every day. Now this brings us back to the study we've been looking at. You can come back over to 1 Peter now, chapter 3. We've been looking for the last couple of months at biblical masculinity and biblical femininity. Now those are important words, especially when you understand the adjective in front of the noun. Biblical masculinity and biblical femininity must be defined by Scripture, by the Bible. And God is very clear that there are distinctions, functionally distinctions in roles between men and women in the family and in the church. And I would argue even in society. Now the context we're looking at in First Peter chapter three rolls from 1 Peter chapter two in Peter's talking about submission. He talks about submitting to the government, submitting to every human institution. He gives us an example of, of slaves submitting to masters and then the ultimate example of Jesus submitting to the father in his suffering. And then he comes to verse one of chapter three when he says, likewise, in the same way, as we're talking about submission and we've covered this in great detail, wives should submit or follow the headship or leadership of their own husbands. We have described that and talked about that for some weeks, but it's important to remember that this is not some church construct that people uh, invented back in the dark ages to keep women in check. I heard someone say that one time. No, this is God's design where both the man and the woman, the husband and the wife, the male and the female will find ultimate fulfillment and listen, deep heartfelt happiness in discovering what God desires for them. How is a woman different from a girl? How is a woman different from a man? That's how you define femininity. She's mature, she's no longer a girl, but she's a woman, and there's nothing wrong with being a girl, but we need to long for our little girls to grow up to be godly women. And she is a woman instead of a man or a male. Now we dove into this passage, and I'm just gonna quickly highlight uh, what we've been, been in the past two weeks. And then we're gonna drill down specifically at one of the main points, specifically number four. Five pictures of a godly woman's femininity. We looked first of all at the fact that she is submissive in her marriage. Verse one, in the same way, you wives be submissive to your own husbands, not to every man, not to any other husband, but to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient, he sets up this case as it would have been in the case in the first century where a woman would, would have come to Christ and the husband had not. How, how does she win him? How does she evangelize him? How does she minister to him? He says very specifically, if they are disobedient to the word or, or to the gospel, 
They may be one without a word, very loud silence, by the behavior of their wives. We learn, secondly, in the second picture of godly femininity, not only is she submissive in her marriage, but right on the heels of that, secondly, she is respectable in her behavior. As they observe an ungodly man observing in his godly wife living at home with him, her chaste and respectable behavior. She's pure and she's holy. She's sexually above reproach in all of her life. She's respectful, literally. She's fearful in the way that she honors the Lord. Her godliness is a magnet to the gospel. That's his point. Thirdly, she is purposeful in her adornments. We spent all uh, 50 plus minutes last week looking at this. Purposeful in her adornments. She's modest. Your adornment, verse three, must not be merely external. Then he gives three examples. Braiding the hair, wearing gold jewelry, putting on dresses. If your hair is braided, if you have gold jewelry, if you're wearing a dress, that's not to say that you're ungodly. What he's saying is you're not, a woman doesn't use external allurements to show off, but rather she concentrates on her heart. Specifically, verse four, let it be, instead of people noticing you for the external, let it be the hidden person of the heart with an imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, precious in the sight of God. These, these equate to being humble. Or said differently, the opposite of a gentle and quiet spirit, here's the opposite of that. Here's how you can check to see if you don't have a gentle and a quiet spirit. You yell. You resolve conflicts by anger. You complain. You nag. You manipulate to get your way. You coerce. You pit your children against your husband. You're negative. You're argumentative. You're loud and you're obnoxious. And you focus on charm instead of fearing the Lord. That's just looking at the dictionary sense of quiet and gentle and seeing the opposite of those things. And then we find out it is imperishable. This kind of heart doesn't go away. And secondly, it's precious in the sight of God. Now that leads us where I want us to concentrate in this brief time we have this morning in number four. Number five will be very quick, by the way. Number four, she is biblical in her imitation. She's biblical or scriptural in her imitation. Peter reaches back to the Old Testament and says, this is not something I've invented. The definition of biblical femininity, the definition of biblical godliness in a woman. For in this way, in former times, that's, that's another way of saying the Old Testament days, the holy women also who hoped in God, they used to adorn themselves. Remember, there's a contrast between adorning yourself with external allurements versus the imperishable qualities of a gentle and quiet spirit internally that gets the attention of God and then will raise the, the wonderful spiritual eyebrows of the godly being submissive to their own husbands. So see how he just goes back and get, gets everything he just said? They're submissive and they're modest. He grabs those two, pulls them together. And then he goes, verse six, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you have become her children if you do what is right 
without being frightened by any fear. Submission, respectability, modesty, and dignity sound very interesting, but what do they look like in a godly wife or a godly woman? Well, Peter lays out this important foundation by showing where women are to look for not only instructions, but examples. I was saying last week in the, um, in the Q&A last Sunday night, I grew up in a very broken home, a very, very broken home. My, my parents, um, who are, I really believe are both with the Lord, they moved out of living in the same room when I was 12. Never saw them sleep in the same room after that. They were divorced when I was 19. Um, it, I, I, I saw the way they resolved conflicts was by volume and by yelling and by winning. And it broke my heart. I went to seminary studying theology and studying godliness and studying what it meant to be a man that, that God honored and, and realized pretty quick I was a complete imposter. I was acting like I knew what a godly family and a godly man were to be and I, I, I didn't. And a man told me something in my freshman year of seminary that has stuck with me ever since. He said, you, we were talking about this issue. I said, look, I, I want to be married someday, but I've, I've never seen what it means to be a godly father and husband. And I've never seen what a godly woman looks like in this context. And it was, it was a war zone in my house. He said, have you ever thought about the fact that if you look in your Bible, you'll find all the instruction you need to be the man that you need to be and all the examples you need to see so that you know exactly what a godly man looks like and what a godly woman is like that you can pursue. By the way, before my parents died, both of them, I asked in the future if I could ever use their example. And they said, please, by all means, if anyone can learn from our mistakes, you may use those. So I'm not dishonoring their, their memory. Women, Ladies, wives, where do you look to find the picture and the template and the example of who you are to be and what you're to be like, how you're to be? Let me ask it this way to our younger ladies. What are you gonna be like when you grow up? Boy, what a great answer if they said, I wanna be like mom. I wanna be like my grandmom. And for some of you, there are ladies in this room that a young girl might say, I want to be like that lady right there. That's wonderful. But what do you do when you read your Bibles? Is it just a book of morals and do this and don't do that? Well, certainly it tells us what's right and wrong. But it also shows us right and wrong, living example. I was thinking one time, if I had ever written the Bible, and praise God, I didn't. If I had written the Bible, it would have been such a, like an encyclopedia or a dictionary, everything clearly spelled out. God in his genius said, I'm not gonna reveal myself to you in an encyclopedia or a dictionary or a list of rules and do's and don'ts. He reveals himself in narrative, stories that really happen. He reveals himself in poems, in prophecy, in letters. 
and apocalyptic future events. And in that way, he shows us glimpses of himself we would have never seen had he not revealed himself in so many different ways and portions as the writer of Hebrews says. So he says, listen, verse five, in the former ways, the former times, that's Israel's past as recorded in the Old Testament, holy women acted or holy women also were this way. They're called holy because they lived in a way that was pleasing to God. The reference specifically here is to Sarah, which suggests that women in view were like Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Leah in that context. Now we start finding out what these women were like. Look at the first descriptor. Who hoped in God. Who hoped in God. Think of the context here. He's specifically talking about women who live in what we would consider hopeless situations. They don't share, as a Christian couple does, in the grace of life between a loving husband and a loving wife who both love Jesus. The principle is happiness and holiness is found in hoping in God. I think it's the most important comment in this verse because we learn that these women did not submit to their husbands because they believed that their husbands were superior to them intellectually or spiritually. The context again is submission. The reason they submitted is because they believed God would reward all those who put their trust and confidence in him. Then he goes back and captures that phrase adornment or the way we attract eyes of others, either God's or others, used to adorn themselves, these holy women, adorn themselves being submissive to their own husbands. Peter does something important that, that's super instructive here, I think, to you and to me and how we read our Bibles. He points to the Old Testament to demonstrate that what he has been saying in the New Testament is consistently with out variation with God's heart and God's instruction in the old. He points to the Old Testament to demonstrate this has been a pattern of behavior in godly women for millennia since the patriarchal times. These are spiritual values not attached to culture, spiritual values not attached to ages, or countries. And by the way, these women were not perfect. Just read Sarah's biography in Genesis. She was no saint, but she was an example. The only, let's remember, as we look to the Old Testament, as 1 Corinthians 10 tells us, there are types and examples. As we look to the Old Testament for examples here, we are not going to find anyone perfect. The only perfect person we will find in the scripture is the Lord Jesus. And yet, he says, find ungodly people trying to be godly and you can find instruction on your own path toward holiness. Look at these three pillars. They put their hope in God, like the widows in 1 Timothy 5, 5, by the way. They make themselves beautiful with their internal heart, the gentle and quiet spirit they had. And thirdly, they were submissive to their own husbands. Submissive was a long-standing, is a long-standing tradition in the lives of godly women. They hoped in God. They were beautiful from the inside out. 
and they were submissive to their own husbands. And remember, God's eyes are to be considered when dressing and the heart is to be considered when submitting. Now it gets really specific, verse six. Not just holy women, not just former times, but specifically, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Now we need to talk about this verse. Does this mean that I need to go home this afternoon, sit down with my precious bride, Miss Kim, and say, honey, and she says, yes. And I say, no, you mean yes, Lord. (laughs) She says, Rick. I say, no, you mean Master Rick. She says, sweetie. I say, you mean most devout, holy sweetie. That's not what this means at all. The reference is to Genesis chapter 18. This is, we have to go back here. This is what's in mind when Peter describes this. Go back to Genesis 18 because this is the, the exact reference that he's pulling out for us to understand. So we need to see what's going on here and what's not going on here. As you're turning there, by the way, nowhere in this narrative does she address Abraham as Lord Abraham. You'll see what I mean in just a moment. In Genesis chapter 18, verse 1. Now the Lord appeared, this is the promise of their son Isaac. Now the Lord appeared to him, Abraham, by the oaks of Mamre while he was still sitting at the tent door in the heat of the day. And when he lifted up his eyes and looked, behold. And when you see the word behold in the Old Testament, it's like saying, guess what? Check this out. There were three men standing opposite him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth. He knew something was special about these three men and said, My Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, please do not pass by, pass your servant by. He recognized this was something of a divine representative. Please, let a little water be brought. Wash your feet, rest yourselves under the tree and I will bring a piece of bread so that you may refresh yourselves after you may go since you have visited your servant. And they said, so do as you've said. You're gonna give us food and bread? Go get it. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah and said, quickly prepare three measures of fine flour, knead it and make bread cakes. This tells us that they didn't go to the, to the uh, uh, cabinet and get a loaf of bread out. She had to make the bread. Abraham also ran to the herd, took a tender and choice calf, gave it to the servant and he hurried to prepare it. He butchered it. They're gonna have steak and meat. He took curds and milk. That's always kind of troubled me, those phrases together. But anyway, curds and milk and the calf which he had prepared, placed it before them, was standing by them under the tree as they ate. Quite a feast. And they said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? He said, there in the tent. And he said, I will surely return to you at this time next year. And guess what? Sarah, your wife, will have a son. 
Sarah was listening at the tent door, which was behind him. Now, Sarah and Abraham were old, advanced in age. Sarah was past childbearing. Sarah and Abraham were about 100 years old. Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I have become old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? And the Lord said to Abraham, Why does Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I indeed bear a child when I am old? Is anything too difficult for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah denied it, however, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, no, but you did laugh. Verse 12, Sarah laughed to herself, saying, after I have become old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being so old. She's talking about Abraham, not specifically talking to Abraham. In fact, she's talking to the Lord's representative, to the Lord himself. Now, why is this an important narrative? Why is this so important? There's an imitation factor that's going on here. First of all, she, in order to have this expectation, hoped in God. It's an offhanded comment by Sarah to the idea that she will become pregnant by Abraham. She's saying a lot here about their age and their intimacy here that I don't think I need to explain. I think what Peter finds so remarkable is that in this situation, such a weird situation, is Sarah referred to Abraham with dignity and respect until instead of calling him an impotent old man. That's the point. He's drawing a context in this situation where she should have said, he's too old. She said, this is my head, my leader, my Lord. Even in the strange and bizarre situation, Sarah maintained her respect and honor of Abraham's leadership. Now, again, there is nothing in this that makes us say, I mean, husbands, don't, don't go home today and say, okay, let's just talk about the different synonyms for Lord that you can put in your vocabulary for me. That's not what's going on here. This is a customary application. I love how Simon Kistemaker, great commentator, describes this. He says, here's a modern example of this culturalization that's happening here. In the southern part of the United States, that's where I grew up, and this is certainly true. In the southern part of the United States, a son respectfully addresses his father as sir and his mother as ma'am. Yes, sir. No, sir. Yes, ma'am. No, ma'am. We tried so hard with our boys in Southern California to do this. It's really difficult when you're the only family that does that. He goes on. He shows deference not in slavish subjection, but because the surrounding culture demands it. Married women, Kistemaker says, ought to observe the customary rules of address in their own culture. They also should make a distinction between the principle and application of that principle. The principle is to be submissive. The application varies according to place, time, and culture. Thus, within the setting of her culture, Sarah applied this principle and called Abraham her Master, her kurios is what it says in the Greek in this text. My head and my leader. Let me put this in our context. 
It is disgraceful for a woman to belligerently challenge her husband's headship or leadership in public. As we said last week, that should and could be appealed in private. But we don't do it in public. This was a public thing that Sarah was looking at. So how do we know what this means? Look at the last phrase. You have become Sarah's children, her children, if you do what is right. If you're holy, if you're godly. Sarah's children, it's interesting. We are children of Abraham, Galatians 2 says. He is our father because he's the seed, more the seed of our savior. But here it says that women can be the children of Sarah, hoping in God so that she is their great example. Now here's what happens. This is what happens in every point of disobedience. In the book of Haggai, there's, um, uh, remember what's happening, the Zerubbabel sent back to, to rebuild the temple and uh, Haggai's prophesying and he's saying, go and build the temple first. But instead the people went back and built walled houses, literally decorated houses. They went back and set their own uh, uh, houses up before they did what the Lord told them to, which was to build the temple. God confronts them through Haggai. They repent. This is, I love Haggai. This is a great story because they, it has a good ending. Haggai comes and says, you built your own houses, you decorated them and you left the house of the Lord desolate. Repent, go get cedars from Lebanon. Come and build the house of the Lord. And they say, you're right. And they did. And then in chapter two, as he's admonishing them to build this temple, which he says will have more glory than the first temple, that was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. How would it have more glory? He says at the end of the chapter, because the Messiah himself will end up walking in that temple. Some of the older people were saying, I don't know, we shouldn't do it. It's gonna be, it's not gonna be like the former glory, like it was 70 years ago when, when, uh, with Solomon's temple. So let's just, let's just uh, you know, put something together and let it be. And then we find out something. Haggai says to those who are rebuilding the temple, Rebuild the temple and do not fear. Afraid of what? This is important. They were afraid of the consequences and the cost of obedience. Consequences. What if they build this temple, which Nebuchadnezzar came and ransacked because it said that they have a great God. Wouldn't that be an attractive magnet to Egypt and to Assyria and to Nebuchadnezzar and to Babylon to come and do it again? They were afraid of the consequences of obedience. They were also afraid, as we look back in the first chapter, because they were, they were putting up their own houses and decorating them before they took care of the Lord's. They were afraid of what obedience would cost them. Now that's important Obedience always has consequences and obedience always has a cost. Now look at what, what um, Peter says at the end of verse six. You do this, you imitate, you pursue holiness, you have a gentle and quiet spirit, you adorn yourself inside versus outside, you submit, you do what's right without being frightened by any what? Fear. What are they afraid of? Really simple. They're afraid of the consequences of obedience and the cost of obedience. 
What will happen if I obey? Am I going to be, be um, uh, abused, looked down upon? Am I going to be ridiculed? And what it would cost them, I don't get my way. Afraid of what? The consequences of submitting to their own husbands in the context here. But let me say this. How can a woman, a godly woman, not be frightened by any fear? What if you do have an abusive, unkind husband? That's why you have the church That's why you have church leaders. That's why you have wisdom and counsel and people who should and could be able to walk with you through these things and you don't have to make those decisions by yourself. It's the thrust of the whole discussion on submission. Ultimately, submission is a response to God and his authority and the authority that we submit to everyone, going back to chapter two into husbands in chapter three, every authority will ultimately be accountable to God for their leadership. So let's put some, some tires on this. How do you drive this out of here? Ladies, let me encourage you. Read your Bibles with an eye toward imitation. Study Sarah's life. Don't imitate her sin. There was some lying that happened and some covering up that happened that, that you need to learn from. Look at Rachel. Look at Rebecca. Look at Hannah. Ruth, Naomi, Esther, Mary, Dorcas or Tabitha, Lois, Eunice. There are so many godly women who ought to be understood and imitated. You may not have had the greatest examples growing up. You may have a hard time because of relationships looking around for examples. But you can open your Bible and find living pictures of what godliness looks like. Can I say it? Yes, this is the read your Bible more sermon. Of course, where, where else would you read? Our, our understanding of this godly woman is her, her imitation is biblical. She imitates biblically sound women and she learns from those who aren't. Wow, you wanna learn a lot? Look at the life of Jezebel. What a wicked wife, a horrific leader, a bloodthirsty woman. Look to the scriptures. And number five, the fifth picture of a godly woman's femininity. We don't need to spend much time here because we looked at this in great detail when we were talking about how this applies to men. She's vulnerable in her role. She understands that there is a vulnerability in her role, which is again why we have the church and protection of godly pastors and elders and leaders who can counsel in any kind of threatening or dangerous situation. Nothing that this passage speaks of intimates that a woman should stay in a threatening situation for her, an abusive situation for her. That's why we have the church to walk you through these issues. You husbands in the same way live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker or the Greek says a weaker vessel, weaker vase. Since she is a woman, show her, fellow, her, her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of God so your prayers will not be hindered. We've looked all, already at this in our biblical masculinity series, but a few comments are necessary. First, Peter says that the wife is weaker This is not a term of derision. This is not a term of evaluation for a negative response. 
by and large, women are physically weaker than men. They're outliers. I told you last week, I, I visit the gym. There are some women who go to the gym who scare me. I want to be on the other side of the gym when they're throwing more weight around than I can. There are outliers. There are, there are some are, are stronger than men. But the idea is God has given the, the hard, laborious work of putting food on the table primarily to men. It's not an evaluation like, oh, those women are too weak. It's no, God made the men weak, so you don't have to do that. It's a gift. But the context also informs us that this weakness is also attached to her, her role as a submitter. She's vulnerable. Secondly, she's not to be frightened by any fear, not a blind trust. It involves talking to her husband, getting the church involved if necessary. And thirdly, she is to enjoy the grace of life with her husband. There's so much debate about this. Let me just make it simple. I think it's two things. The grace of life is the grace that comes through being married that even unbelievers can have some common grace experience with. It's wonderful to be married. I, I love my wife. I love being married. I love going home and talking to her. Even unbelievers can have that friendship and that deep abiding relationship. Even an, an unequally yoked marriage can enjoy that kind of fellowship. So the grace of life is the best relationship that God gives us on this planet is a husband and wife. As we'll see in our next few weeks on singleness, it's not the only relationship that brings fulfillment and satisfaction and service. But it is the grace of life. I think also he's talking about the grace of life because the grace that's given by God is most deeply and intimately enjoyed when the husband and wife both love Christ and are pursuing him together put all this together put it in the biblical blender and see what comes out is this a godly woman is a woman of self-control she's a godly woman of self-control with her appearance with her spending with her deliberations with her trust with her submission and she's growing into this kind of woman. The gospel has clear and compelling effects on a woman and her view of femininity and her expressions of femininity. And these aren't second class lower case. I firmly believe that the gift of being a wife and a mother is perhaps the greatest gift God could give a person on the planet. Especially when you have little children, to have those early years with, with, with kids. I, I, a man is called to work. If he doesn't work, need to let him eat, Paul told Timothy. But to have those, those precious early years with a child when their God is, is the God you gave them, their view of salvation is your understanding of salvation. Their view of morality is the way you see right and wrong. Unmatched influence. If you were to ask me, does a woman have more influence being the president of IBM or the mother of a child at home? That's an easy question to answer. One has eternity in mind. One has eternity in view. Jesus died for the sins of those who believe. 
He rose from the grave. Believing that and understanding that has effects. So gals, wives, ladies, young women, mature women, what are you afraid of? Being godly should be applied without being frightened by any fear. Not afraid of the consequences of our obedience and not afraid of the cost of our obedience. Can I give you one last footnote? I guess it would be an, an end note. I love Mission Road Bible Church. As I was going over these principles, I thought of woman after woman after woman after woman in our body that exemplifies these principles. What a healthy place to find examples in discipleship and instruction. Don't take your relationships for granted. What a gift God has given us. Let's pray.